Please be seated. The northeast African nation of Sudan was ravaged by a civil war. It lasted from 1983 to 2005, although the conflict is far from settled yet this day. The central government in the north, controlled by Arab Muslims, has instigated a reign of terror against the largely Christian and African animist populations in southern Sudan. And in this second Sudanese civil war, as it's known, if we can imagine, well over two million Sudanese have lost their lives. Millions more were displaced from their homes. And among the refugees was a group of 20,000 or so orphaned boys, mostly of the Nur and Dinka ethnic groups, These boys were forced to flee their homes simply to stay alive. Refugee workers began calling them the lost boys of Sudan. John Bull Dow was just 12 years old when his peaceful Dinka farming village was assaulted one night by mortar shells. He ran terrified into the night. In one moment time, everything he had known was stripped away. As one of the lost boys of Sudan, John walked, he walked over a thousand miles across God-forsaken terrain in search of hope. Thousands of boys on the same journey died of starvation. But through a long series of events, John eventually found refuge here in the United States. As an adult, he chronicled his ordeal in a book published in 2007, and the year before, there was a, an acclaimed documentary film that told this same story, 2006. Both the book and the film had this intriguing title, God Grew Tired of Us. The title reflects John's suspicion that God's judgment fell upon Sudan because God had grown tired of people's sin. But God grew tired of us also reflects a sense of divine abandonment and utter despair that this young orphan suffered and so many along with him. Perhaps none of us will ever know the depths of despair the lost boys of Sudan experienced in their desperate struggle to survive, the sense of abandonment. But have you ever felt at times that God has grown tired of you? If you've never experienced some sense of God's abandonment, if you've never faced the despair that God has turned His face away, you will. Somewhere along life's journey, you will enter a dark valley where it seems that the God who is there isn't. Somewhere you will find yourself on a path where it seems the God who promises never to leave you or forsake you has. You will come to a place where it seems God has hidden His face. It's in just such a situation that we find King David in these opening lines of Psalm 13. I encourage you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 13. While we cannot determine the precise nature of David's trial, 
It's highly instructive to see how David works out of despair, out of this sense of abandonment by God. What do you do when God turns His face away? What do you do when you have that sense of abandonment and despair? We need to watch as David works out of that condition. How do you deal with the despair that comes from sensing God has grown tired of you? That He no longer is interested in your life? Where this psalm starts, where David starts in this journey, is with an honest expression of despair. Verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We find, first of all, despair in his relationship to God. Here in verse 1, these four repeated how longs. Four occurrences in two verses emphasizing the intensity of David's grief and his yearning for deliverance. What specifically is causing David's anguish? It is that God has forgotten him. Now, don't don't read that to say God has lost memory of him. I don't know if ever in the Bible that the word forgotten has that sense. But God has not damned him either is not the idea. Has you forgotten me forever? That's not the idea. It's just a literary statement to say that David is suffering a state of ongoing abandonment. Yet God does not seem to consider. God does not seem to regard him. He does not seem to take any special notice of David. I have been forgotten. How long? You've hidden your face from me. I think just a parallel statement to God has forgotten him. But you've hidden your face from me. That that speaks to us. But in the Hebrew mind, how much more? Thinking of Numbers chapter 6 where God gave the priests of Israel a blessing to convey to God's people. Remember that blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance. Lift up His face upon you and give you peace. The priests were to bless the people with this blessing over and again that the face of God would shine upon them. This figure of speech, this anthropomorphic expression, pictures the shining face of God as a source of distinct blessing. David laments the fact that as far as he's concerned, the shining face of God is in full eclipse. God has withheld His blessing from David. Anyone who knows God understands that He is our soul's ultimate source of satisfaction, comfort, blessing, and peace. So to sense that He has grown tired of you, that He has turned away His face from you, is the ultimate of sorrow. We find here a heart that is wrenched with grief. How long will this remain? How long will this continue You've turned your face from me. David laments the fact that the lamp of God's favor has been extinguished and he has been left languishing in the dark. 
So as David looks upward, he's in despair. He next looks inward It also finds here despair in verse 2. God has forgotten. God has hidden His face. But now as he looks within, he finds this despair well seated in his very soul. Verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul? The word counsel here in context and understanding the Hebrew word is a little bit different than our English word counsel. It speaks here of wrestling with thoughts. Not simply gaining wisdom from someone else as we tend to take it, but the idea that within his soul there's a wrestling with his thoughts. All kinds of questions echo in David's soul. Questions that find no answers. How long will this go on, he says. He's in turmoil. His soul is overwhelmed. He is filled, it says here secondly, with sorrow. Again, a parallel statement to the first. How long must I take this counsel, this wrestling of mine? How long must this sorrow fill my heart? This internal tempest continues to characterize the atmosphere of his soul. When will the sorrow and the haunting doubts go away? David is in despair as he looks upward and considers his relationship with God. Verse 1, he is in despair as he looks inward, expressing the upheaval of his soul. And then David looks outward, the end of verse 2, and says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's despair everywhere. His enemy may be death personified, we don't know. Uh, His enemy may be a person. Again, we're not sure of the background of the psalm. The point is that David draws upon his covenantal relationship with God. His enemy is God's enemy. And I think that's how we need to understand it when David speaks of his enemies. His enemies are God's enemies because God has chosen him as the king of Israel to make him his own, a man after his own heart. God has chosen David. And so his enemy is an enemy ultimately of God. And the problem here is that David is being beaten up by a bully And his heavenly Father is nowhere to be seen. This enemy is pummeling me. Where are you? Why have I been abandoned? So there's despair as he looks to God, despair as he looks within, and despair as he looks about. He cries out in despair, God, you've forgotten me. You've grown tired of me. You've abandoned me. My soul is shredded by despair, as questions and concerns haunt me. My enemy pummels me without relief. When will this all end? Charles Spurgeon on this psalm suggested that we call this the howling song. The howling song with the howlongs that repeat. David is clearly in great turmoil. And he does not, we notice here, blush to admit it. He doesn't apologize that he has these thoughts about God, does he? Nor will he stay here. But he never mentions in this psalm sin. He does not repent of sin. You can be sure he's not wasting God's time, charging God with desertion while failing to acknowledge his own sin. That's not the David that we know of the Psalter. David is experiencing an acute sense that God has grown tired of him, but the reason is not sin as such. It's not that David is living in violation of God's will and is willfully running away from God. 
God, he says, has turned his face from him. And so we learn here that responding to despair starts by honestly admitting it. David never charges God with wrongdoing. David is careful not to point the finger at God, not to accuse God. Some tip in that direction as they come to honesty about their situation. But never does David pretend away his feelings either. He feels that God has left him. He's miserable. He does not want to live in this situation any longer. He's right to want the face of God to shine upon him. He's right to acknowledge it is not shining upon him. And he's right to seek it. To ask that God's face would once again shine upon him. Howling is not a bad thing if you truly long for the blessing of God. Now howling can be nothing more than self-pity. But here, it's not self-pity. For David, it is, I desire to see your face. I desire to know again the warmth of relationship with you that I've known. Now where David heads next is very telling. And you need to get on the cart here and make sure that we follow this transition. After his honest expression of genuine despair, David moves on to a heartfelt petition for grace. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider and answer me. What is the answer to God forgetting him? David humbly pleads for God to intervene. To come again to warm him with his presence. One commentator quoted by Spurgeon on this said it so well, resolve never to be dumb when God is deaf. Resolve never to be dumb when God is deaf. Speak when it seems He doesn't hear. That's the time we need to speak the most. And what is the answer for the roiling despair that troubles his soul? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. To light up my eyes, this figure of speech expresses the effect of God's blessing. According to verse 2, David's soul is darkened with despair. Here he asks God to brighten his eyes with hope. We see a parallel with these petitions and what has been stated before. God has abandoned me. Come back. My soul is in turmoil. Lighten my eyes, he prays. If God will bless him, David knows his eyes will sparkle with grace, replacing the hollow, glazed-over look in the eyes of one who is about to die. Whether this is physical death or metaphorical, again, we're not sure. But the brightening of the eyes that comes with a sense of the presence of God and His blessing. He prays to this end. And what about the enemy that assaults Him as we work our way through it? God's abandonment, my inner turmoil, and then the outward turmoil. Here is the request in verse 4 concerning that. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Shaken, the Hebrew word means to stumble or toddle totter or, or wobble. It's, it's when someone has a weight on their back that's far too heavy for them to carry. We should read these words in light of the Old Covenant as well. If God's chosen king is overwhelmed by death, 
or by whatever enemy he is actually facing, then the enemies of God will be emboldened to gloat at the travail of the godly. There's again a a very interesting key here in his prayer, how he works out of his despair. Going to God, he's praying that God would magnify his name. It would be tragic if the ungodly gloated over the godly. So David pleads with God to contend for the glory of his own name, to act in the interest of his own reputation. The answer to divine abandonment, then, is not despair, it's prayer. The answer to divine abandonment is not despair, but prayer. Resolve never to be dumb when God is deaf. Are you in despair? Do you know this place of which David speaks? The answer is to wrestle with God in prayer, pleading that He will defend His name and protect His reputation as a grace-giving God who loves His people. If He has chosen me as His child, if He has given me eternal life, then I should pray with Him to do what He has sought to do with me, to make me His own, to give me His grace, to give me the joy of heart and soul of one who knows Him as Savior. I should pray that God would glorify His name in the spirit that prevails within my soul. We must be careful not to tell God what He must do. But we should learn to pray that God would act so that others witness His glory in our lives, particularly in the midst of despair. Not too many unbelievers have problems when everything's going their way. They can specialize in celebrating in good moments and good times. But it's the believer in God who demonstrates faith like no other time when things are not going well. So we should pray that God would gain glory for His name in us as we go through despair. A despairing David verses 1 and 2, gives way to a praying David, verses 3 and 4. And the next section of the psalm marks the final stage of David's spiritual progression. A joyful celebration of salvation follows in verses 5 and 6. In these two verses, David chooses to think a certain way. Having honestly expressed his despair to God, And then asking God to remove his despair, David continues to win the battle by the way that he thinks. And it is how David chooses to think that has so much to do with the conquest of his despair. David emerges from this prayer closet with new hope and he comes out singing. As he fights despair, David chooses to rejoice in three parallel expressions of God's goodness to his people. Notice where his thoughts take him. Verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. God's steadfast love, the Hebrew word has said, speaks of steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love. God will not abandon me. I know this because of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases We say, well, what's going on here? God's covenant-keeping, loyal, never-failing love? 
I mean, David, come on, it was just a matter of seconds. Just a few sentences back that God has hidden his face from you. So what do we have here? A manic depressive? This flip-flopping back and forth from depression and despair to joy and rejoicing? I don't think at all. This is essentially what's happening. In David's soul, as it were, there's a great fortress on the horizon. A dark, foreboding castle of doom. And the wall surrounding that evil fortress, emblazoned on it, is this declaration, God has forsaken you. God has grown tired of you. What David does here is to take up the battering ram of his knowledge of God's steadfast, loyal love for his people, and David runs at that wall with this battering ram, and he drills it into the wall. And he comes back again and again with the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. He says in his heart, God loves me. He will never fail me. His mercies never come to an end. This is who my God is. And as he beats on the wall of despair with the battering ram of the Gospel, the wall begins to crumble. Take that, despair, David says. My God is a God of steadfast, loyal love. I may not sense His presence right now, but I know He will never abandon me. Die, despair. And then David picks up another battering ram to run at this castle wall of despair. Second part of verse 5, he's speaking first of the trust of the steadfast trustworthy love of God. He now says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Not a separate thought, an interlocking thought, but he finds God's satisfying salvation to consider next. He meditates on the saving grace of God and he rejoices. The dark clouds of despair are pierced by the brilliant rays of God's salvation. Gloom gives way to sunshine in David's soul. His soul begins to sing as he considers this salvation of God. Contemplates the works of God and how He glorifies His name by rescuing His people from their sin. These saving works of God, I think, include physical deliverance, such as when God delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. But the ultimate display of God's salvation is His liberation of His people from their sins and from eternal judgment. This is the ultimate salvation that God gives. And we can miss the significance of this easily. We need to lock in here. When we are tempted to despair, when it seems God has hidden His face, we must run to the solace of the cross. No matter what sorrow you face, it is here at the cross where the just wrath of God against my sin is poured out on Jesus Christ. Does God love me? Is He for me? Has He abandoned me? To answer those questions, I must come back to the reality that Jesus Christ hung on a Roman cross to die in my place. 
and to bear the penalty of my sin. If God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over to death because He loved me from eternity past, I can know that His steadfast love and saving grace will take me all the way home. I come to discern that here at the cross. God sacrificed His Son to give me eternal life. How can He ultimately abandon me? I come back to this place and I realize that any sense of God turning away His face is temporary. It's never eternal. If you have not placed your total trust in Jesus' sacrifice to pay the penalty of your sin, you may never relate to this psalm. You may have absolutely no sense of the horror of the feeling that God has abandoned me, that God has forsaken me because you've never known His love and shut out and isolated from His love to this point in your life, you don't miss what you've never experienced. But in light of what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin, I would plead with you to turn from your sin and embrace Christ's provision of salvation. Because as you do, you will know a joy you've never known before. A reconciliation with God. What is wrong within you, what you know is unsettled, the agitation and the emptiness that is there is an evidence that the love of God has not been poured out into your life. Embrace His forgiveness. Trust His mercy. Throw yourself in dependence upon Him. And you'll know that joy. Yes, it's a joy that leads to sorrow sometimes when we have a sense that it's been withdrawn. It's only a sense. But how much better to know that joy and know that it will return than to never know it at all and to die in abandonment. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, when all hope seems lost, learn to find it by meditating on the Gospel. Learn to come back to what Christ has done for you in your salvation and meditate there. Contemplating the saving grace of God, David's soul rises now in song as he declares his third source of rejoicing. First, God's steadfast love. The loyalty and the faithfulness of my God. Secondly, God's satisfying salvation. He has rescued me from myself and my sin. And thirdly, God's abundant blessing. Verse 6, I will sing then to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. God never withholds anything from us unnecessarily. God loves to pour out grace upon His people. Remember how Jesus put it? I have come that I might make their life miserable. Not what He said. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. 
This is who our God is. When our soul is overwhelmed with despair, we need to learn to meditate on the abundant and bountiful blessings that God pours out upon us every day. Are you discouraged? Does it seem God has grown tired of you? Does it seem that He's turned His face away? Make a list. Not a list of all that's wrong. Make a list of the manifold blessings that God pours out upon you every day. The truth is, we are better mathematicians when counting our sorrows, our woes, when counting all that's wrong. We need to learn to add up blessings and to find joy in them. It I, probably seems a little cheesy to us, I suppose, but you remember that song, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's not great poetry, but there's some great truth there. If we meditate on what God does to pour out His grace every day, we will be surprised at His mercies, and our souls will be buoyed with joy. So here is David as the psalm ends doing what? He's singing. He starts the psalm howling in despair. How long? How long? How long? How long? But now we find David singing. His circumstances have not changed. God has not changed. He has changed. He's changed by meditating on the steadfast love, the saving grace, and the bountiful blessings of God. He's turned his mind to consider what will lift him out of this despair, not keep him in it. We learn that peace of soul does not come then from the resolution of our problems. That's what we tend to think. If everything will go away, it will all be fixed. Peace comes from setting our hope in God purposefully orienting ourselves in that direction. If you are His child, He has bountifully blessed you. Meditate on that reality. And the sunshine of grace will burst through the clouds of doom. I think it's right for us then to conclude that an occasional sense that God has grown tired of you, that He has forgotten you, is really inevitable. He has not forgotten you, but we feel that way from time to time. We will have seasons and experiences of this sense, some of us more than others. But I think in this we must not panic. Such feelings are not the end of the world. Know that when you walk through this valley, it is an opportunity to grow. You will come out on the other side stronger in your love for God and with a greater sense of His love for you. Our joy in God is deepened by such seasons of despair. Such despair not only tests the metal of our souls, it kindles It kindles desires for God and produces greater appreciation of fellowship with Him when the sense of it returns and fills our souls. I had no plan to say this, but I, 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 just, I struggle here to just keep it together. 
because what just overwhelms me as I think of this is 1997. For some reasons I can never explain, it seemed I had a whole year where God turned his face away. It was a horrifying experience. I couldn't define it. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't repent of anything specifically. I knew I was a sinner, but it wasn't anything I was running from God. But there was this sense of emptiness and despair that just overwhelmed the year. And what sweetness there was when the sense of His presence returned. I think as I went through that experience, I just I can't help but it just overwhelms me to think of it again. That it was a season for growth. Not fun at all. But it was an opportunity to grow. And I don't mean by any means that that sense has never returned. But a whole year... I could define nothing externally that led to that. It was like a test from God to see if I would continue to cling to Him in the darkness. So I can say in some small way, there's good in it. There's good that comes from it. Occasionally, we will go through these seasons of despair. I think then, secondly, the way out of despair is a path that we should know well. We should practice it. Learn how to come out of that despair. It starts by honestly admitting our despair and wanting it to end. This, in my experience, is something that was very poorly done. I admitted my despair to God in prayer, but I think just where I was in ministry and life at that place, so much of it was just left within me. Perhaps there would have been much quicker victory had there been others who shared that trial with me. Then again, I didn't know it was all happening until it was over in some sense of what was really taking place. But as we find our way out of it, it, we must admit our despair. It involves taking our desire to God in prayer, becoming people of prayer that storm the throne of God, incessantly asking for His presence to return, for a sense of His blessing. And it includes the purposeful choice of meditating on God's saving grace and abundant blessing. To think a certain way. Not to allow my mind to be consumed by the trial and the heartache of it all, but to think about what God has done in His blessing. To think reality. I mean, when we're in despair as the people of God, we're really not connected to reality. We don't pretend it away. We admit where we are, but we begin to think about what is real and what is true. And again, I can point back to the days of coming out of that particular trial that the Word of God was crucial in it. To see the promises of God and to know what He had said. That is so essential. The battle is won on our knees and the battle is won in our minds. 
and what we think. We must also say here then, I think as we contemplate the implications of the psalm, is that the ultimate abandonment by God was experienced for us by Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said on the cross as He cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That was genuine God-forsakenness. It was not Jesus' sin that led the Father to turn His face away as we sung about this morning. It was my sin. It was your sin. And because Jesus was abandoned by God for us, we need never fear eternal abandonment by God again. Jesus' blood pleads our case. It satisfies God's wrath so that we never need fear that God will turn away from us in judgment. But there's a great warning here for every one of us. Unless you throw your trust upon Christ's saving work, you will experience eternal abandonment by God. You will enter eternity and He will say essentially, I do not know you. Depart from me to eternal judgment. That's the ultimate abandonment. You must become God's child by trusting in His saving grace. Throwing off and throwing away your self-dependence and pride. And in humility receiving His saving grace. You must become God's child by trusting in His salvation or you will continue in utter abandonment. And that will be finalized in eternity. For those who know Christ, for those who are redeemed, Jesus suffered the full despair of abandonment for us. We have been delivered from it. From that despair. We have been liberated to walk in fellowship with the Lord because of what Christ has done. And in any despair that we sense, We continue to come back here. Jesus paid that price. He suffered genuine abandonment. We sang of it this morning. The Father turns His face away. That was real. He suffered that for us that we may never have to despair again. And I think if I could add this then on that theme of singing, and the church, we should not miss the place of the local church in overcoming despair. I say this by way of application, but I think it flows out of verse 6 as we find David now singing, as he enters the psalm in despair, we find him now singing of the salvation of God. The singing of the church is a communal aid to think right thoughts and thus to chase away the clouds of despair. I think many people think this way. I'm discouraged. I feel sinful and dirty. I feel as if God has grown tired of me. The last place on earth I want to be is to go to church. That's the first place you should want to be. That's the place we should run for refuge and strength. I sit here on the front row singing week after week, gaining from the encouragement of God's people and the songs that we sing. These songs of deliverance and salvation that we've sung today buoy us up in our discouragement and in our despair. As we look within, we find nothing to hold us up. 
Sometimes as we look without, we find enemies, and sometimes as we look up, we find that God Himself seems to have turned His face away. Then we come to the singing church, and together as we lift up our voices in songs, singing these songs of redemption, we are strengthened in our hope. And where that hope is fed week after week as we sing together, we're not here judging whether we like the songs as such. Judging how the service is put together. Simply here consuming and watching and observing. We're here participating as a singing church, lifting up songs of redemption. When the congregation sings songs of redemption, we help one another set our minds on truths that replace despair with joy. They set our minds right that we may walk with God. Maybe I speak to someone here who feels forgotten by God. If you are a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me assure you, you are not. You're not forgotten by God. And I leave for all of us who know the Lord this evidence. God's Word to His people in Isaiah 49. This passage concedes that it might be possible to imagine a nursing mother who would forget her infant. I mean, it's unimaginable, but the, the psalmist, or, or Isaiah rather, grants that. God grants that as He speaks to Israel. Maybe a nursing mother would forget her infant. Yet, says the Lord, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Take hope, believer. He who did not spare his own son will never cease to supply every need of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Sometimes we might even need to experience a sense of His abandonment, but ultimately that deprivation will be abundantly filled by God's grace. You can count on it. You can know it. Because His steadfast love never ceases. It holds firm forever and ever. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come into Your presence with thanksgiving in faith, in hope, in love, thanking You for what You do to bring us out of despair. We know, Father, that ultimately we have no business walking in despair. You have suffered. Jesus has taken the full experience of abandonment and has paid the price in our place but yet as we go through this life we find ourselves weak we find our faith searching and so very poor god together here today we pause to give you thanks for the salvation that is in jesus and i pray father that as we finish out this time together that we will indeed rejoice and give thanks and that You will help us to think clearly and to pray ably as we encourage one another's hearts in God. We thank You for Your love and want to sing now together about it. Help us to do so and so encourage one another. 
In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.